I next met with Dr. Christopher Flowers to talk about ash papers on lymphomas. And to begin, he commented on a data set from his lymphocare study of follicular lymphoma. So this is really an interesting finding that came from the National Lymphocare Study and from other studies. As the national chair of the National Lymphocare Study, this has been an area where we've tried to use data that come from community practitioners to be able to understand the patterns of care for follicular lymphoma and to understand what outcomes happen to patients who are out there in real-world practice. What we've seen in a number of clinical trials, as well as in the National Lymphocare Study, is there are about 20% of patients who receive frontline standard RCHOP therapy who have an early progression of disease, meaning that they progress within 24 months. And what we suspected was that this was a group of patients that had a markedly worse prognosis than what you would expect for the standard follicular lymphoma patient population. But if you look at a number of the frontline trials that used RCHOP, the PRIMA study, Ali Press's study that compared RCHOP to CHOP plus I-131, and the patients in the National Lymphocare Study, there were about 20% of those with RCHOP who were these early progressors. In this population in the National Lymphocare Study, what we found that among this population of the early progressors, they had a significantly worse overall survival with a remarkable hazard ratio of 12.3 is what we saw in that population. And that even after adjustment for FLIPI score, those patients with early progression of disease did worse in terms of their expected overall survival, which suggests that this is a population of patients with follicular lymphoma who need different treatment options than what you would standardly approach these patients. This is not the typical population of follicular lymphoma where you would expect that they would have a relapsing and remitting course and that with other multiple lines of therapies that they're still going to be able to get back into remission and stay in remission for a period of time. Yeah, these patients had a five-year mortality of 50%. Yeah, so that's remarkably impressive for follicular lymphoma. We commonly have thought of follicular lymphoma as a disease that has a 10-year life expectancy, but we now know in follow-up publications that that's much longer than that with the modern therapies that we have, probably approaching 15 to 18 years for the average patient now. Can I just clarify, the Lymphocare Project, you know, a lot of the patients got other regimen, CVP. This was just focusing on people who got RCHOP or everything? So this was just focusing on patients that got RCHOP. So the National Lymphocare Study, as you alluded to, was a study of patients in the United States who received frontline therapy between 2004 and 2007, or were diagnosed with follicular lymphoma between 2004 and 2007 and had some frontline management strategy. Some of those during that time period included regimens that did not include rituximab. So in your own practice, if you have a younger patient, let's say under the age of 60 with FL who relapses on either you know BR or RCHOP, what are your thoughts nowadays about what you would do both trial and non-trial? Yeah, so these early progressive disease patients very clearly are bad actors who need to be considered for more aggressive therapies, potentially, like stem cell transplantation, including allogeneic stem cell transplantation, particularly for younger patients, as you mentioned. There are also patients that should be considered for clinical trials of novel agents, either some of the novel agents that we'll discuss later on that are being pursued in clinical trials for follicular lymphoma, both in the frontline and in the relapse setting, like 
lenalidomide and abrutinib and ideal alicib as combination drugs in clinical trials or other novel agents like PD-1 antagonists or PD-L1 antagonists in clinical trials. There's been a lot of interest in R-squared and also R-squared CHOP, where I've seen studies of that in diffuse large B-cell. But at ASH, there was a phase two paper looking at R-squared CHOP in patients with high burden FL. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so this was an interesting paper that was presented by the LISA group. So in this study, there were patients within the LISA where they looked at the combination of lenalidomide with R-CHOP where lenalidomide was given for 14 days of the cycles from day 10 to day 14. In previous studies, in this study, they looked at day 1 to day 14, giving the lenalidomide at 25 milligrams as their dose. They did use aspirin prophylaxis for these patients, which I think is important to note. We commonly worry about the need for prophylaxis with lenalidomide in patients with myeloma, a little bit less so in lymphoma patients, but aspirin prophylaxis was the prophylaxis that was chosen for this particular patient population. When you look at this study, it had a relatively impressive complete response rate and overall response rate. These are response rates that are similar to RCHOP in other settings where we've seen it. They performed an interesting comparison, which was not exactly a fair comparison, in this study where they compared the use of lenalidomide plus RCHOP to other studies where RCHOP was used. So in this study, they compared the lenalidomide RCHOP group to a group of patients in the PRIMA trial that had previously had RCHOP and to another trial where they used RCHOP where PET was being looked at, a smaller trial that was performed by Dupuy and colleagues and published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2012. In comparison to both of those historical controls, it looked like the R-squared CHOP had improved response rates in comparison to those older historical controls. I think importantly, when you look at this study, there was some additional toxicity that was added by the lenalidomide. And in this study, there were about 12 of the patients that stopped lenalidomide early. Half of those were patients who stopped the whole regimen early, and another half of those were patients who stopped early because of toxicities of the lenalidomide alone. So I want to ask you about three papers that relate to the question of maintenance treatment in follicular lymphoma. The first one was a SAC trial looking at five years of rituximab maintenance versus just four doses. Can you talk about that? Sure. This is a study that has been around for some time where they've been following these patients in this SAC trial that examine rituximab followed by either a short course of rituximab maintenance or a longer course of rituximab maintenance. I think one of the important things to know about this patient population, while it was a relatively large patient population of 270 patients, it came in an era where we were less clear about the best ways for using rituximab maintenance, and it was one of the more early exploratory trials. And so it included a quite heterogeneous patient population, both of untreated relapse and chemotherapy-resistant follicular lymphoma patients. So some of the conclusions from this trial are challenged by the patient population that was chosen initially. But when you look at the trial as a whole, these were patients that were enrolled, again, in an older time frame, so from 2004 to 2007, and now have much longer follow-up after their rituximab maintenance. 
And they randomized patients, again, to either shorter course of maintenance or the longer course of maintenance. And when you look at patients who were randomized in this trial, there really was no clear significant difference in the overall survival or in terms of the observed best response between these two arms. And so surprisingly, when you look at this population, there were not clear differences for a much longer benefit for rituximab maintenance. Although rituximab maintenance in this setting with a longer course did double the median progression-free survival. And so again, we have to look at the trade-offs between a PFS benefit for maintenance, which we've seen in a number of different trials, versus an overall survival benefit for maintenance, which was not observed in this study. But I mean, the PFS difference, as you mentioned, I mean, it's 7.4 versus 3.5 years. That's a pretty big difference. It is. I think that's a sizable difference for this study. And again, it all lines up along the lines of what is important in terms of a benefit for follicular lymphoma patients. A PFS benefit clearly is a benefit to patients where longer maintenance, but those patients are all patients that are receiving maintenance during that time frame. Whereas patients may be progressing without any difference in overall survival and not requiring therapy during that time frame. And so it varies in terms of the strategies that physicians take with their patients regarding maintenance strategy for follicular lymphoma. Where some individuals will take the strategy that maintaining a patient who's disease-free and prolonging the PFS benefit is of greatest value, and so prolonging maintenance may provide that benefit. Others value the therapy-free period as being an important goal for patients, and maintaining patients therapy-free if that period of therapy-free benefit is not having any harm in terms of overall survival and would say that with that benefit in mind that this maintenance is not of additional value. So I'm just this trial seems very similar to the ECOG Resort trial where instead of five years they used indefinite. How do you think the results here line up versus Resort? That's a great question. This is really challenging to compare because of the patient population that was selected in this trial. Really, what would need to be teased out in this trial is to what extent these differences were due to the proportion of patients on each arm who were untreated, relapsed, or stable, and where those benefits line out for each of those different patient populations. And so for that reason, it makes it challenging to compare to resort. But the finding is relatively similar. In resort, what you saw there is that the extended period of rituximab maintenance following rituximab induction provided a benefit in terms of treatment-free period or chemotherapy treatment-free period for those who got rituximab maintenance and progression-free survival benefit. And so if you value both of those as important benefits for patients, giving that repeated course of rituximab maintenance versus serial interval rituximab retreatment at the time of relapse, that rituximab was a benefit. For those who would value overall survival as the most important benefit, in any study of treatment, then you could make the justification that serial interval retreatment provided the same kind of benefit as rituximab maintenance without the need to come in for treatment and produce similar overall survival. Although the resort trial at this point is a little bit premature to start to look at survival endpoints. Although I didn't recall that dramatic of a difference in progression-free survival and resort, you know, several years like what was seen here. So it is not. I mean, this trial, again, it's a little bit more challenging to interpret these results because of the patient population that was selected. 
the resort difference is not nearly as wide as what was seen here. I mean, this is really a doubling of the progression-free survival. Did you say that some of these patients got treatment of relapse disease? Correct. So these are both chemotherapy of naive patients and some patients with relapse disease. That's interesting. So, of course, here we're talking about the issue of R maintenance after R induction, but we also saw some more data from the PRIMA study at ASH looking at R maintenance after R chemo. Can you talk about what was presented there? Sure. So this is additional follow-up on the PRIMA trial. Again, the PRIMA trial was designed as a study to investigate the role of rituximab maintenance after an R chemotherapy induction. So patients were allowed to proceed on to the R chemotherapy induction of their choice and their physician's choice, but the vast majority of the patients, 75%, received R-CHOP as their induction regimen. There was another 22% who received R-CVP and about 3% in this particular study population who received RFCM. So this mostly applies to patients who received R-CHOP as their chemotherapy induction regimen. In this study, they looked at patients now with a median follow-up of 73 months from randomization to look at six-year progression-free survival. And what they found was that the six-year progression-free survival estimate was about 43% in the observation arm and about 59% in the rituximab maintenance arm. So clearly a benefit to rituximab maintenance that persisted with additional follow-up and some suggestion that the progression-free survival curves at least continue to widen with additional follow-up on these patients. If you look at the models to try to predict which patients had better outcomes, again, rituximab maintenance as well as older age and female gender were significant predictors of survival in this particular population. This issue of female gender is one that is starting to come up with some suggestions that women with follicular lymphoma may have better responses in the rituximab maintenance arm, and that's something that's being explored in other studies. What about in terms of the difference of survival here with these two approaches? Between the single-agent rituximab followed by maintenance and... Yeah, maintenance or not. It looks like it doesn't really... At this point, it's not having very much of an effect on survival. No, at this point, there is not a clear difference on overall survival. These benefits are progression-free survival benefits like what's been seen in the other studies. So another paper presented, I was curious your thoughts about, because you were in a think tank where Julie Vose expressed the thought about the potential of patients getting radioimmune therapy as opposed to R maintenance. And here we see a randomized phase two study comparing these two. Can you talk about that? Sure. So there have really been two approaches for maintenance or consolidation of follicular lymphoma patients after completion of upfront induction therapy. The data that we just discussed from the PRIMA trial looking at maintenance therapy following upfront rituximab plus chemotherapy that have been previously presented, and you just saw additional follow-up data on those studies. There are data that have been presented from the FIT trial looking at the use of radioimmunotherapy with ibrutubumab tioxidan, the same radioimmunotherapy that's being studied here, following chemotherapy predominantly. Now, some of those patients had chemoimmunotherapy in that study as induction, but the majority of those patients had chemotherapy as induction, and that showed that there was a benefit to radioimmunotherapy consolidation after induction therapy versus observation. 
And then there was another trial that was presented by Ali Press from the SWOG group that looked at R-CHOP compared to CHOP, followed by I-131-based radioimmunotherapy. And that trial suggested that those two approaches were essentially equivalent. But there was no maintenance applied to the R-CHOP arm in that group. So this trial really was one of the trials that was eagerly awaited to try and compare the two groups in terms of rituximab maintenance and radioimmunotherapy. It's a randomized phase two trial that was led by the Spanish group. And these were patients that have been ongoing in this trial and were enrolled from 2008 to 2010. And these were patients with follicular lymphoma grades one, two, and three A, and they were randomized to one of those two arms. One of the things that was eagerly awaited was to know whether there was a clear difference between radioimmunotherapy and rituximab maintenance in these two groups, both in terms of the toxicity and in terms of the efficacy. And in terms of efficacy, at 36 months, there really was no difference in overall survival at 98% versus 95% in terms of the overall survival. And so if you look at progression-free survival, though, there was suggestions that progression-free survival was superior with rituximab maintenance compared to the group that got radioimmunotherapy. Yeah, I mean, it was, I'm not sure that's been demonstrated before, but it was a pretty clear separation of those curves. Now, those are very clearly separated curves, and this is really the first study to compare these two approaches. Are there other studies out there looking at that? And what about the combination of consolidation with RIT followed by R maintenance? Yeah, so there are some studies that are out there looking at the combination of the two approaches, but this really was the best and probably likely to be the definitive study to look at the comparison of rituximab maintenance versus radioimmunotherapy. As you may know, one of the radioimmunotherapy products has been withdrawn from the market in terms of being formally marketed, and it remains to be seen what will happen with radioimmunotherapy moving forward, either as a consolidation or as a retreatment approach for follicular lymphoma. I think one of the challenges is this is an effective therapy for retreatment, and you would hate to see the data from a study like this remove it as an option for patients with follicular lymphoma, where this can be a very viable option and useful for those who have limited bone marrow involvement. I'm curious about your thoughts concerning Nancy Bartlett's presentation of a phase two study of brentuximab vidotin in patients with CD30 positive NHL, particularly patients with diffuse large B cell. So this particular study is also an interesting one. So as you know, brentuximab venotin is an agent that's an anti-CD30 monoclonal antibody that is tied to a microtubule disrupting agent, or statin-E. And when we look at this drug, it's one that has been active in Hodgkin lymphoma, but also it appears to be active in other CD30-positive lymphomas. And so this was an approach to look at the activity of this drug in non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are CD30-positive. This study is interesting also because it allowed patients, even with no clear evidence of CD30 expression, to be enrolled on the trial. And that's in part because there are other data from cutaneous T-cell lymphoma that suggests that even with patients without evidence of expression of CD30 by the conventional tests that we currently have available, there still can be responses to brentuximab vendotin. The vast majority of the patients that were enrolled in this study involved diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That was 44 of the 62 subjects 
in the study, but it did also include some other lymphoma subtypes. At the time of analysis, there were three cycles of treatment that had been completed, but the range of cycles included 1 to 17 cycles over the course of all the patients that were enrolled in the study. Among the diffusorge B-cell patients in particular, 40% of those patients achieved an objective response. And as an investigator who helped to participate in this trial, this is an agent that looks to be promising for the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are CD30 positive, and one that I think still is worthy of additional study, particularly in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. One of the things that will remain a challenge is coming up with a diagnostic test that helps us to best identify the patients that are likely to respond to this agent. What is your take on why responses were seen in people where CD30 was not detected, that it was there, just not detected, or there's some other mechanism? Yeah, I think both of those suggestions are viable ones. I think the prevailing thought now is that the current methods for CD30 detection are inadequate to detect CD30 at low levels on patients who may have CD30 expression. But you could also posit that CD30 expression on cells in the tumor environment and killing of supporting stromal cells that are CD30 positive might also benefit patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, even if the tumor itself wasn't CD30 positive. Do we know anything about the durability of these responses or the clinical utility of them? It is still a little bit premature to be able to look at that in this study. The median follow-up for patients in this study was very short. Most had received only about three cycles of therapy, and the median duration of treatment was about 10 weeks. And so this is really still too premature to see how durable these responses are. This is also a very heavily pretreated population, particularly in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. These are typically patients who have had RCHOP as their upfront therapy and then had an autologous stem cell transplant as their second-line therapy, may have had some other form of salvage therapy, either pre- or post-transplant. And so to see a single agent perform like this with 40% objective response rate is relatively meaningful in such a heavily pretreated patient population who've had multi-agent chemotherapy. Is there a role for this strategy? I don't even know if it's possible if you wanted to do it outside a trial setting. At this point, that's a little bit premature. This is an agent that's approved in Hodgkin lymphoma. The other non-Hodgkin lymphoma population that is CD30 positive or the anaplastic large cell lymphomas more generally, where this is also approved in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But this is a population where this is something that is still exploratory and needs more study in clinical trials before it's more broadly applied to patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We were talking about R-squared CHOP before, and there was a paper in diffuse large B-cell, the REAL7 trial, that looked at this with relationship to the cell of origin. What did they see? This is a trial from the Italian group that looked in a Simon two-stage design at older patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, where we know from a series of trials that R-CHOP, given on every 21-day basis, is the standard of care. There have been two groups that have taken leadership in looking at the use of lenalidomide in combination. You heard about the use of lenalidomide in combination with RCHOP in follicular lymphoma. In diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it's out a little bit ahead of that, and it's been looked at by the Italian group and also by a group led at the Mayo Clinic. And so these are additional follow-up data from the group at the Mayo Clinic. 
These were patients that were originally enrolled from 2010 and 2011 with 49 patients and additional follow-up on these particular patients in that study. When you look at this regimen overall, this is one that appears to be well-tolerated. From this study and from the Mayo study, it looks like patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in general respond to the combination of lenalidomide iChOP with limited additional toxicities beyond what's been seen with RCHOP alone. When you look at the cell of origin analysis that was performed in this study, they took patients who had unstained blocks and then went back and performed germinal center versus ABC typing by immunohistochemistry. And what they found is that if you compare those two groups, the non-GCB group seemed to fare fairly similarly to what was seen for the GCB group, which is not what you would typically expect for RCHOP therapy. would suggest that maybe with lenalidomide RCHOP, that that is a benefit that is allowing improvement of that particular subgroup. Now, this regimen is also being studied in diffuse large B cell in a cooperative group setting, correct? Correct. So there is now an ECOG-led trial that is looking at the combination of lenalidomide RCHOP in comparison to RCHOP. And that's one trial concept that I'm eagerly pushing forward that's also developed out of the work that was done by the Mayo Group. Now, this trial, it's being proposed? It's not finalized yet? So this is a trial that is open now and enrolling patients across the United States. So is this trial restricted in terms of cell of origin? So it does not restrict in terms of cell of origin, and that's been one of the areas of contention about whether or not that's something that was necessary for this trial. It will look at cell of origin both by immunohistochemistry and by retaining tissue samples for being able to do newer technologies like the recently published study that looked at using nanostring technology as a way of looking at gene expression profiling to be able to separate cell of origin. So we've been talking a lot about R-squared, and there was a paper in mantle cell, upfront treatment, a phase two study of lenalidomide rituximab alone without chemotherapy, and we've seen that strategy fleshed out and now being dealt with in a randomized study in FL. What about this MCL paper? Yeah, so for both mantle cell lymphoma and for follicular lymphoma, and the other lymphomas more broadly, Those have been areas where there has been a strong push for trying to move towards chemotherapy-free treatments in the upfront setting. And so this is an approach in mantle cell lymphoma to avoid chemotherapy in the upfront setting. Lenalidomide plus rituximab, as you mentioned, has been looked at in the relapse setting, both in follicular lymphoma and in indolent lymphomas more broadly. This was a study that looked at giving lenalidomide at a 20-milligram dose given on days 1 through 21 of a 28-day cycle, so a 7-day break for up to 12 total cycles of therapy. This did allow dose escalation up to 25 milligrams if patients were able to tolerate the 20 milligrams adequately and then enrolled subjects in this combination in a Simon two-stage design. This reports on the first 31 subjects that were enrolled in this study at four centers. Overall, this was a treatment that was well-tolerated. There were relatively few grade 3, 4 hemologic toxicities. The majority of those were neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia, which can be expected with lenalidomide, even in the upfront setting. Some patients did have rash, but overall, this was a very well-tolerated regimen for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. When you look at the efficacy of this regimen, 
it was quite impressive as well with an overall response rate of 77% and a CR rate of 40% in this patient population. So this is comparable to what has been seen in older studies of CHOP and RCHOP in mantle cell lymphoma. If you look historically at some of the studies that were done by the German group and even some of the studies done in the United States. And so this is an impressive chemotherapy-free induction regimen that warrants additional study. So again, these are both approved agents, and theoretically, you could attempt to use this regimen, for example, an older patient where you really didn't want to even give bendamustine. Is that something you would consider? As of yet, these are not approved for first-line use in mantle cell lymphoma. Linalidomide is approved in the relapse setting for mantle cell lymphoma, and so I think it would be appropriate to use there. For patients with mantle cell lymphoma, and that's something that I've used quite frequently for patients who have relapse disease, in the upfront setting, this is still experimental, but these data do look very promising and worthy of exploring, particularly in older individuals where chemotherapy may be very difficult to tolerate, even chemotherapy agents like bendamustine, which tend to be easier to tolerate in some of the oldest old patients, can also be difficult. So you talked about looking at this more in other studies, but you also have the issue of ibrutinib, and not to mention all the other agents coming along, and ibrutinib already approved in mantle cell recently. What is the thinking in terms of trying to devise non-chemotherapy induction regimens, and where does ibrutinib fit in? So that's a great question. I think in mantle cell, we have lots of opportunities for being able to do that. We now have three approved agents for mantle cell lymphoma in the relapse setting, and each provide us with opportunities for combinations that can be used and moved to the frontline setting for mantle cell lymphoma. You've seen the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab. There are also studies of abrutinib and rituximab that are moving forward as frontline regimens, both for follicular lymphoma and other indolent lymphomas. And mantle cell lymphoma would be another useful target there as well. I think it's going to be a very challenging landscape. You also have idelalaseb, which is moving forward that looks to be active in these patient populations and can be used in combination with rituximab and chemotherapy. And so it's going to be a very exciting time for mantle cell lymphoma. I think very soon we will have more agents and more potential agent combinations than we may have patients with mantle cell lymphoma to put on these trials. But there will be a number of well-tolerated agents that we can start to look at in the frontline setting for these patients. Among those, I think abrutinib and rituximab seems to be one that would likely move forward first, and then lenalidomide rituximab, which you've seen here, also looks to be very promising. So I want to ask you about a couple papers related to T-cell lymphomas, and earlier you referred to a study in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and Madeline Duvick presented a phase two trial of bevodotin there. Can you talk about that? Great. So this is exactly the study that I alluded to. So brintuximab vedotin looks to be quite active in a number of CD30 positive malignancies. And here, Madeline Duvick looked directly at its use in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma in a phase two trial of 48 patients with CTCL that had CD30 positive and other CD30-positive lymphoproliferative disorders, including some patients with lymphomatoid papulosis and some patients with primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So when you look at this particular patient population, this is a little bit more heterogeneous than the typical 
patient population with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, although these are patients that tend to have very poor outcomes since they tend to relapse multiple times, in particular the CTCL patients, regardless of the number of therapies that you give. When you look at the activity of brentuximab vedotin in this particular patient population, it was quite promising. It had an overall response rate of more than 70%, with half of those being complete responses. And so that was quite favorable for a patient population that tends to be so refractory to therapy. In particular, when you look at the duration of response, though, it was not quite as favorable as you might hope for. For the patients with mycosis fungoides, the duration of response was only about 13 weeks. So it looks as though that these are patients that respond to therapy, but those durations tend to be relatively short-lived. Anything new in terms of side effects and toxicity of B. vidotin? And, you know, originally we heard a lot about the potential for peripheral neuropathy. More recently, I've been hearing from investigators about dermatologic issues. What are you seeing yourself? So I think there are a handful of things that you need to be aware of. The neurologic toxicity, first and foremost, is something that all treating physicians should be aware of with B. vidotin. Another one that is of particular concern in Hodgkin lymphoma patients is the risk of pneumonitis since they receive other agents and can have seen multiple other agents like bleomycin or radiation or busulfan with transplant that can also cause pneumonitis. And so the overlapping toxicities there, one needs to be aware of. Another one that has recently been raised is the risk of pancreatitis. And so I think that's something that individuals need to be aware of as a possibility and to check amylase and lipase and to be wary of that and look for signs and symptoms of pancreatitis. And there was actually a paper, I think, at ASH that reported on pancreatitis. What about dermatologic problems? Have you seen that? Dermatologic problems are something that can occur on occasion. I have seen some patients with rashes and sometimes even quite profound rashes that can occur with brentuximab ventotin. And those can be typically managed with steroids or with other topicals and sometimes require systemic steroids or other systemic therapies. You mentioned pneumonitis in the Hodgkin patients. Typically, is this something that presents clinically or radiologically or what's the usual, how is it picked up? It's often a clinical presentation that occurs with shortness of breath that is usually an atypical shortness of breath and sometimes out of proportion to any other things that are going on with the patient. And responds to steroids? And it does typically respond to steroids. And then you can restart the bevidotin? I think that's something that you need to be very cautious of. I think with the Hodgkin lymphoma patient population, it's particularly challenged by the fact that they have multiple other agents that could have been contributing to that toxicity. And so it's something that you need to be aware of and cautiously restart bevidotin. And if you see something that reemerges, it's something that you need to stop. So we're going to get into Hodgkin in a second, but just finally, the other paper I want to ask you about in terms of T-cell lymphoma was a study of 11 patients with ALK-positive lymphoma, nine of which had ALCL, and these patients received crizotinib, which of course is approved in non-small cell lung cancer. And I think this group had reported a couple cases with ASH a couple years ago. Yes, this has been an area of interest that has been mostly relegated to case reports up to this point and now has a series. I think this is an area, at least from the lymphoma standpoint, that we are actively interested in the use of crizotinib because it is something that should be active in ALK-positive lymphoma patients. 
Now, the positive anaplastic lymphomas are ones that tend to fare fairly well with chemotherapy, and the vast majority of those patients respond to CHOP alone. So about 80% of those patients are long-term survivors after CHOP therapy. So this is not a group that is in desperate need of new therapies, but for those patients who relapse, and particularly those who relapse after transplant, like all other non-Hodgkin lymphoma populations, that is a very poor risk group. And so it was good to see this very logical application of grisotinib to the ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphomas. And as you might expect, the overall response rate and the CR rates were extremely high in this patient population with this agent, with 82% of patients having a CR with grisotinib. So if I put this together correctly, was it the nine CRs they saw, was that the nine ALCUL patients? Correct. So it was nine out of the 11 total patients had CRs of the anaplastic large cell lymphoma. But those nine patients were the ALCL patients, right? They were all ALK positive anaplastic large cell. Right. So given the fact, as you mentioned, that there's not a huge number of patients in this kind of situation, do you see trials in the upfront setting being developed? And if so, where does bevacizumab fit in with crizotinib? That's a great question. One would hope that this would be something that would move forward as an agent either for older individuals with anaplastic large cell lymphoma where it may be more difficult to tolerate the anthracycline as part of chemotherapy as a move towards an upfront therapy or as a combination early on in relapse to try and improve the number of patients who go on to stem cell transplant for those rare patients who do relapse after ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma to move this agent into the armamentarium. I would suspect, just in terms of the way that this drug is being developed, that this will either require large trials that have a number of investigators who contribute patients to those to do lymphoma trials, or involve enrolling lymphoma patients with ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma on more general trials for ALK-positive disease that include solid tumors as well that would occur more likely in the relapse setting than the upfront setting. What about the combination of bevacizumab and crizotinib? Well, these are both agents that look to be quite active in this ALK-positive ALCL subset, and I think that would be an intriguing combination, particularly in the relapse setting, that could hopefully produce good responses without chemotherapy in this patient population and might be able to avoid the need for transplant for patients with relapsed anaplastic large cell lymphoma that's ALK-positive. So I think that would be a very intriguing combination to pursue. In lung cancer, we're seeing some really exciting data on the next generation of ALK inhibitors. There's a LDK378, another drug called electinib, and responses are being seen in people who are resistant to crizotinib. Have you heard any discussion about looking at those agents in lymphoma? Not yet. I mean, I think one of the challenges with that, as I mentioned, is because this tends to be a favorable subset of the lymphomas that the ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphomas don't get quite as much attention in clinical trials. The other thing to note, though, is that there are other non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are ALK-positive besides the ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphomas. A fraction of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas are ALK-positive, and that can be a subset where we start to explore some of these newer agents in the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas more broadly, and I would be eager to see these agents applied in that area. 
So I want to move on and finish out our discussion here talking about Hodgkin lymphoma and there are several abstracts looking at bevidotin. First three-year follow-up data of an ongoing phase two study of bevidotin and relapsed refractory HL. So this was a follow-up study of the pivotal trial looking at brintuximab vidotin in patients with relapsed or refractory Hodgkin lymphoma, now with three-year follow-up on these particular patients in this trial. Again, as a reminder, this was a study where patients received brintuximab vidotin every three weeks as an outpatient infusion at 1.8 milligrams per kilogram for 16 total cycles of therapy. In this particular population, these were individuals who had a median of nine cycles of brintuximab vidotin and had a high overall response rate of 75%. With this longer-term follow-up, the median observation time was almost three years across the 102 patients enrolled. And at the time of loss follow-up, half of the patients were still alive with a median overall survival of 40 months. What this suggests is that for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, who got bifidotin as salvage therapy following failure of an autologous stem cell transplant with relapsed or refractory disease, that among those patients who had responses, that those responses were quite durable. In your own practice, how do you manage patients in this space? So at this point, patients with Hodgkin lymphoma still receive ABVD as the standard upfront chemotherapy in the United States and then typically go on to salvage chemotherapy, autologous stem cell transplant for those patients who are young enough and healthy enough. There are some practitioners who are starting to look at the role of brintuximab vidotin in the salvage setting before stem cell transplant, although that's not part of our usual practice. We typically would use this as an agent after autologous stem cell transplant it looks to be a very active option for those patients. Sometimes we're taking patients to a consolidative allogeneic stem cell transplant or for using as an agent on its own to maintain remissions as long as possible off of additional therapies. Obviously, we have the trials trying to incorporate bevidotin up front, but what about sort of between up front and after transplant? You mentioned leading into transplant. What is some of the thinking about how this drug can be incorporated into the treatment of HL? So there now are approaches looking both in Hodgkin lymphoma and in the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, incorporating bevidotin into the regimens for salvage. So there's a trial randomizing patients to looking at rice for patients with relapsed B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas versus rice plus bevidotin, which may be an attractive agent based on the data that I discussed earlier that bevidotin can be active in CD30 positive, and even those without measurable CD30 positive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, where this could be active. And it's also being looked at in Hodgkin lymphoma in combination, looking at ICE versus ICE plus bevidotin or other chemotherapy combinations for Hodgkin lymphoma. So what about this abstract 4378 looking at bevidotin in pediatric patients? So pediatric Hodgkin lymphoma is something that exists along the continuum with young adult and adult Hodgkin lymphoma. And so I think this is a logical extension of bevidotin into this population. When you look at this particular trial, they enrolled 16 patients with relapsed and refractory Hodgkin lymphoma with a median age of 15 years 
about half of the patients were male and half were female, as can be expected for Hodgkin lymphoma in the pediatric population. When you look at the response rates to bevodotin in this relapsed refractory pediatric population, the overall response rate was 64%, with the CR rate being relatively similar to what you would see in adult patients with relapsed refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. And so that looks to be quite meaningful. What about abstract 4389 as a phase two study looking at bevodotin up front in patients age 60 and over? So older patients with Hodgkin lymphoma is a very challenging population to treat. So as I mentioned earlier, ABVD is the standard frontline therapy for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. But for patients over the age of 60, that can be a challenging regimen to give, particularly with the bleomycin given to that older agent population as well as the adriamycin. So I think looking at a very active single agent like brintuximab vidotin that might be easier to tolerate could be useful for this older age patient population. Other regimens that have been tried in that setting have been CHOP therapy or oral alkylating agent chemotherapy. And so having a novel approach for this patient population is something that is quite needed. In this study, they looked at 13 patients with classical Hodgkin lymphoma with a median age of 75. This is very clearly a patient age population where you may be a little bit reluctant to give standard ABVD. The creatinine clearance in this patient population was between 30 and 60, so also a group that may have more challenges with standard chemotherapy regimens. And among these patients, the response rate was 82% with a CR rate of 64%. This is quite impressive for an older patient population with uh, single-agent therapy, which suggests that this may be something that can move forward, particularly for these older individuals who may be unlikely to tolerate standard chemotherapy regimens at that age. So I see here there's a 92-year-old woman, there's an 88-year-old man. When you see patients like that, particularly if they're frail right now, do you ever think about doing this outside a trial setting? So I think this is something that for that kind of patient population that you may need to think about things that are a little bit outside of the box. The standard approaches that we've typically used have been oral alkylating agents that are easier to tolerate but don't have nearly this high of a complete response rate. And patients that are in that age range, in their upper 80s and 90s, I'd be reluctant oftentimes even to give CHOP chemotherapy. And so this does offer another alternative out there for that patient group. I guess you should say, too, that both of those patients had CRs, which is an interesting thought. Yeah, so that's quite impressive in this particular older age population.